Well, we have been in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. And last week, as we began to work our way through Isaiah 9, there were several things that we encountered in the text. Uh, And as we just read a few moments ago, this is God's promise of a very special son who would be given. The child is born, speaks of his humanity. A son is given, and when we explore that a little further, we realize that this is indicating to us that this is God's son, a divine son. So this is a very unique individual that he's both human and divine. He's the only one who's ever lived uh, that has both a divine nature and a human nature. Uh, And that's a mystery to us. How is that possible? I can't fully explain it, but I believe it because God reveals it in his word to us. Now, in the midst of a very busy Christmas season, it's easy to lose track of the wonder of these great truths. And we were actually sharing earlier in uh, the pre-service prayer time, I think it was Pastor Lloyd who was, was mentioning that while this is, as the song says, the most wonderful time of the year, uh, it's actually one of the more stressful times of the year, isn't it? And it seems like it's not only the busyness of the season, but sometimes it just, I don't know that this is scientifically provable, but it certainly feels like uh, there are greater uh, cares and anxieties and stresses. Uh, even, I know in our, our situation, we've had uh, three different uh, families that we're connected to have experienced a death this week. One was an elderly lady whose home going was imminent. And uh, it actually was an answer to prayer that God took her to be uh, with Jesus. Another young mom, 41 years old, that we had met just a couple of years ago who'd been battling cancer, she went to be with Jesus last night. And you say, wow, 41. And then the, the third case was just a couple of days ago, um, a young father died in his sleep very unexpectedly. And um, that's a family we've known through the years back in South Carolina and you just say, ugh, how hard. We know death comes every day. We know there are stresses every single day of the year. But somehow, uh, either there actually is a little greater, uh, maybe a larger wave of this kind of difficulty this time of year. Or maybe it's just that sense of it should be the most wonderful time of year, but it's not. Maybe that's what heightens our sense of, of these tragedies. But you know, two weeks ago, as we looked at Isaiah 7, God's very specific message in Jesus Christ, in the name Emmanuel that he chose for his only begotten son, is the name that means God is with us. Despite the difficulties of these circumstances and these inexplicable tragedies that sweep into our worlds uh, without any kind of notification or warning, God is with us. And as Isaiah 9 unfolds before us, the message that God is sending to us is that He is for us. For us, a child is born. For us, a son is given. And then those particular names that reinforce this this great truth that God is actually for us. And last week, we only had time to go through the the first two that tell us of, of this great son. And we looked at his origin And I noted that a moment ago. He's both human and divine. His capacity, the government shall be upon his shoulders. The whole thing rests on him. There's never been a leader on planet Earth like this. 
and then his character. Now, his character is what is chiefly revealed in these four particular names or titles that are given to him. And last week, we looked at the first two. He's the wonderful counselor and the mighty God. A counselor who makes decisions and ministers in such a way that we all stand in amazement. That's what wonderful counselor is all about. Mighty God simply indicates he has the power to do the things that he wants to do. He's never inhibited uh, by, by some opposition party. There's not an army that's big enough to stand against him. There's no other being in all the universe that wields the kind of might that this one does. Now, the next title is beautiful, Everlasting Father, and we're going to take a look at that before we come to Prince of Peace. So let's explore Everlasting Father uh, together because, again, the, the character of this one is, is quite remarkable. This is a term that was actually used widely in ancient times, and there are some examples of this uh, from other uh, ancient Eastern kings who would refer to themselves as father of the people. Even in our own nation's history, we refer to George Washington as... Yeah, all right, he's one of the founding fathers or the father of our nation. There might be a couple of variations of that. So we're familiar with this term in one sense, but it was commonly used. There's one ancient king in particular, very famous one, from whom even some of our own government uh, derives a little bit of its history, and that's the ruler Hammurabi. Some of you studied this maybe in history of civilization or something like this. And he lived, uh, I think it's, what, 3,700 years ago now. Uh, he is the sixth and perhaps the greatest king of the first Babylonian dynasty. And as you can see there in the right column, he, was, he referred to himself as one who is like a natural father for his people, who has established perpetual safety for his people. And so he would be an example of one of those Eastern kings who referred to himself as a father of the people. Now think about the kind of king Ahaz was. And let me get those of you uh, who haven't been with us uh, for the last couple of weeks, let me get you up to speed. King Ahaz is the king in Judah that was uh, ruling at the time of Isaiah's ministry, and he's a wicked king. And we've noted from the historical record that he was trying to broker peace deals with some of the regional powers, Tiglath-Pileser in particular. And when God came to him in Isaiah 7 and offered to, to give him any kind of a sign uh, of God's blessing and protection and provision, Ahaz uh, hypocritically refused that sign. And that's the context in which that first prophecy is borne out because God says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. I'm going to give a sign for the sake of faithful people like Isaiah and others in Judah who follow me and love me, and the sign will be this virgin-born son, Emmanuel. Well, Ahaz just continued to, to drag the nation down. I mean, it was, a, it was a, a, a spiral downward of spiritual proportions, of military proportions, uh, economically. In every way, the nation was going down the tubes under the leadership of Ahaz. He was anything but this kind of father. In 2 Kings 16, verse 7, it is recorded that he sent a message to Assyria's king, who was the most powerful ruler in the region, and Ahaz says to him, I am your servant and your son. He's not anybody's father at that particular moment. 
And he makes an appeal to Tiglath-Pileser, come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. I think how discouraging for the people of Judah. It would be like the president of our nation suddenly subjecting us to one of the other world powers and saying, I'll be your servant, I'll be your son. And we would say, no, in the spirit of George Washington, be the father of this nation. This is a king who leaves the people in a place of serious vulnerability. He's a king who is selfish in every way, seeking only to protect his interests. And he leaves the people who should have known his protection in a place of genuine insecurity. I pause at this point and and think to myself, how often I feel vulnerable and insecure. And I suspect you do too, don't you? There are many circumstances that bring about that sense of insecurity, vulnerability. Some of you are exposed to difficulties right now that you have no control over. You'd love for nothing more than somebody to step in And not just run a little interference, but make this situation right. In one sense, we could say, you need a father figure to intervene, don't you? But the king that's been promised here, the everlasting father, is in in a unique relationship to his people because in choosing that particular title, he is saying, I am the one who will protect you and provide for you. I love the words of Psalm 103, verse 13, that tell us that God, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Do you think of God as this kind of father, a powerful leader who says, I will protect you and provide for you. And even specifically, as Psalm 103 is indicating, a father who never forgets the weakness uh, of your being. He knows how small you are. He knows how insecure you actually are, how vulnerable you feel. He knows the weakness even of your spiritual resolve. Some of us say, I want to follow Jesus, and occasionally we do an okay job of it, but many other days it's just a fight and a struggle. He knows all that, and it's not a threat to him. He is not disappointed in those things to where he would walk away and say, I'm done with you. No, he has great compassion for those who fear him. We see some glimpses of this fatherhood protecting and providing for his people in the first advent. When Jesus came and lived out those first 33 years, you glimpse a little bit of this kind of fatherhood. And you say, where do you see it? Well, you see his provision in a number of situations. The two that come to my mind are the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000. Two different occasions and two very different kinds of groups that were there. But people who were hungry, People who had been with him and his disciples for many days, just listening to the teaching, just eating it up, soaking it up, uh, being amazed at what he taught and what he did, 
and he realizes these people are hungry. And you remember the disciples were the ones who said, well, let's send them into the nearby towns and they can buy bread and get food and then we can come back and reconvene the conference. And Jesus actually says, you give them something to eat. And, and that, that leaves them fumbling around a little bit, doesn't it? He's actually setting them all up to reveal what kind of provider he is, miraculously taking the inadequate provisions of one little boy's lunch, and as he prays over it and blesses it, it multiplies miraculously, and everybody is, is fed, not just enough to kind of tide them over to the next meal. They have leftovers. What kind of providing father is this? He's the protector as well. He, if you remember the story where his disciples were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and the storm came in and they were sure they would die. And remember, at least some of those were veteran fishermen. They'd spent lots of time in the boat and they seemed to be as persuaded as anybody else in the boat that they were about to die. And Jesus, as Father, stands up and says to the winds and waves, peace, be still. And it's just glass. And they're in awe, and they say, what manner of man is this? Well, he's a Father who protects his own and provides for them. The Gospels are remarkable in that they reveal to us not only provision and protection, but uh, personal ministry of all kinds. And we love to read the stories of the healings, don't we? We see a little bit of ourselves in all of those people. And sometimes it's because we're physically weak and infirm. Jesus has power to provide all that we're in need of. So he's a God who's in a unique relationship with his people. He's also in a unique relationship to time. He's the father of eternity, we could read that phrase, the everlasting father. That means he exists above time, outside of time, and beyond time. Now, you think of Judah's history, if you go back to the Old Testament and read through it, there were a number of kings who rose to power, but none is still alive. David reigned 40 years, and he died. Solomon reigned 40 years, he died. Uzziah, who was a great king just at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, reigned for 52 years, and he died. His son Jotham reigned 16 years, and he died. Ahaz, who's now come on the scene, will reign 16 years. He's probably six to eight years into that reign, but he's going to pass away in an untimely fashion. There's not one king in Judah's history who could say, I'm your everlasting father. Maybe father for a few decades, a protector, protector and provider for a season of history, but here is one who in relationship to time says, I have the capacity to rule, to protect, to provide eternally. The everlasting father shoulders the responsibility of caring and providing for his people forever. And I think that's the kind of king and ruler I want. I know I can't be that myself. Oh, I try just like you do sometimes. If we're really honest, I mean, we almost daily, we're trying to be king in our own little domain, aren't we? How's that working out for you? I'll be the first to say it never works out well for me. 
I had a watch band break this past week. Actually, a couple weeks ago. This week, the, the new band came in, and I was trying to repair it. You know, on one side of that watch, I cannot get the pin to go in the little hole. I had a friend years ago who, when, when I, I traveled with a little group, uh, a drama group from my college, and uh, we were on the road for about four months, and when one of us would get in kind of a little pickle like that, he'd sometimes say these really encouraging words, you know, you just need to be smarter than the watch. <laughs> and of course, that would be highly irritating. I haven't talked to my friend Gary for quite some time, but I could hear Gary's voice echoing in my ear while I'm over the desk in these pieces of the watch and cannot get it in. And, and Kristen saw the exasperation and she was like, you know, you might not want to try so hard on that because she actually knew that a new watch was coming uh, for, uh, as a birthday present, and I'm very happy to have that now. I couldn't even be king over the pieces of my watch band. It's a good lesson, and it's painful for us to realize we're not as great and powerful as we want to be. We need Jesus. We actually need him for things that are far more important than repairing broken watch bands. We need a king who can remedy the really deep and dark and ugly stuff that goes on within our hearts and souls. And we need one who has the capacity to rule over all of that stuff forever. We need Jesus. Well, here's the next part. He's not only the everlasting father, he is the prince of peace. Now again, in the context of Isaiah's life and ministry and the story in chapter 9, the entire portion of this prophecy has been dealing with war and oppression and sin and judgment. It's a culture of chaos and decline. And we've noted the rebellion of God's people themselves, the wicked and perverse rule of Ahaz, the threatening voices of Rezin and Pekah, the king of Syria and the king of Israel, the northern uh, kingdom of the Jewish people at that time, the unstoppable march of Assyria's armies as Tiglath-Pileser devours nation after nation. I mean, this is a time of chaos. And so for God's people, peace is not simply the absence of, of wars. If you can just keep the Assyrians at bay, then we will know peace. Now, there's a lot more to it. And when you begin to study this concept of peace in Scripture, you find out that it's more than the absence of, of war or hostility, but there's a completeness or wholeness that's in view. That is, life is the way it should be. There's not one of us here who would say, yeah, my life is whole. On our best days, we, we might get, what, 80%? I don't even know how to put a percentage on that. Have any of you said of late, I just want some peace? If you haven't said it out loud, you've probably thought it. And what you meant is that you wish you could turn down the volume on the four-year-old who lives in your house. Or that you can make the phone stop ringing or the past due notifications to cease. Maybe it's the peace, peace in the workplace. You'd like to just get caught up on everything or get that inventory completed or the work orders filled. We're looking for peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. You may have heard that before. It's a beautiful concept. You know, if you are desperate for 
family shalom or specifically parenting shalom, you, you are thinking, you know, wouldn't it be great to wake up one morning and, and to hear my four-year-old speak waking words that sound like this, good morning, mother. I've already made my bed. And while I make my breakfast, and thank you for teaching me how to scramble eggs and make toast, could I fix something for you? And how would you like your coffee? Father, as I was straightening my room this morning, I realized that there are several repairs around the house that haven't been finished yet. And if it's all right with you, when I return from K4 and have my lunch, I'll patch the sheetrock when I get home and, and take care of that pesky leak in the upstairs bathroom. Yeah, you're laughing because you're like, that's crazy talk. Uh, maybe, I think it would be shalom. <laughs> Going back to the parenting conference that we had not long ago, this is what Paul Tripp refers to as the illusion of self-parenting children. No, no four-year-old does that. Actually, there are adults who don't even do that. And partly because we're not yet living in the kind of shalom that God promises. For some, it would be financial shalom. I, I read an article this week about a lady who just had this incredible surprise that they forgave all kinds of debt that, that she owned. And I'm thinking, you know what, why, how come nobody I know or how come I never get that phone call? Wouldn't that be great? Hello, Mr. Brooks, this is Wells Fargo. After reviewing your account, we thought that eliminating the balance of your mortgage would be a great help to your family. <laughs> would that be okay if we just considered that paid in full? And you're thinking, okay, that would be shalom. Yeah, we live in a world that wants financial shalom. That's why last year, 97,361,111 people bought lottery tickets. And those tickets totaled at $70.1 billion. Because we live with the illusion that if you could win enough, you'd have shalom. Workplace shalom. Nobody's going to get an email like this, likely. But wouldn't it be cool if you walk into the office tomorrow morning, bring up the email, and you see a note from your employer that says, we just wanted you to know what a joy it is to work alongside you every day and what a privilege it is for us to have employees like you. We're not only going to give you a 100% raise in salary this year, but we're adding another four weeks vacation. If there's anything else that we can do to serve you, please do not hesitate to let us know. Thanks for working for our company. When you can look at the sum of your life and say everything is as it should be, that's peace. It's far more than just the enemy's not beating down the door trying to kill you or take over your nation. Everything's as it ought to be. That's the kind of peace that Jesus brings. 
Now, when you put with that the term prince, it's important to know that this is not, this is not a king in waiting. You can't think of Prince Charles, poor guy. How frustrating to live your life saying, I'm next in line, but like the line never moves. <laughs> Which sounds terrible as if, you know, we all want the queen to move along. That's not the point. No, this is a term that designates, as you can see, a ruler, a chief, an official with the power and authority to administer. He's ready to go. He's got everything that he needs. And here is a king, a chief, who says, my rule will be marked by peace, and I know how to bring it about, and I will bring it about. There are Old Testament prophecies like Zechariah 9, verse 10, that tell us he is the prince of global peace. He will bring it. One of our favorite Christmas carols is joy to the world. And there's a beautiful line in that that we happily sing of Jesus ruling the world with truth and grace, making the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. That is, he's going to put everything and everybody in line so that they fulfill those righteous purposes that ultimately bring shalom to the world. Zechariah 9, verse 10, God promises, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he, that is Messiah, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those were the borders that are are being established here that say it will all be under his power. The great hope of our hearts today is that one day we will not be looking to earthly rulers like Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping uh, to to broker some kind of partial peace, but it will be Jesus as the Prince of Peace who will establish it globally. But there's more to this rule than just the establishment of global peace. There's also personal peace. And this is the best news to me. Because we could have a world that functions perfectly economically, uh, where people are in agreement, and yet if, if the issues that I live with every day that you live with in your own heart and soul are not remedied, there's not actually peace. And we begin to see some things in the scriptures that tell us that Jesus is the prince of peace in your heart and in your soul. Think of those things that bring you the greatest unrest internally. And those are the kinds of things that go back to our sin or our weakness or our failure. Some of you carry around this dark cloud of guilt, and it's well-founded because when you look into the past, as painful as it is, you say, I blew it here and here and here. I said, I did, I thought things that were just evil or wicked or they brought harm or hurt to other people, and you carry around a real sense of guilt. What do you do with that? We have all kinds of mechanisms as we try to be king over that guilt, but the reality is there's nothing that you and I are able to do that actually purge the soul and heart of that guilt. We need a king who has the capacity to do that, and that's the kind of king that Jesus is. Look at Romans 5 with me, please. And if you have a a Bible I would encourage you to turn to this portion. I've only put verse 1 on the screen, but even while I share a few thoughts from this, your eyes can uh, scan beyond verse 1 and be blessed, and I think your ears can, uh, can process some of what I'm saying as well, but this is quite remarkable. 
The Apostle Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, you're not justified by works that you perform. You're not justified by some kind of spiritual commitment. And the question would be justified before whom? Well, justified before God, the great judge of the universe. Justified by faith, faith that rests in Jesus Christ. Look at the next phrase. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, period. Jesus doesn't do 80% of it and then leave 20% to you where you demonstrate how sorrowful you are, how repentant you are, how committed you are. And so with His 80% and your 20%, then God says, you, you are justified. So let there be peace between us. No, Jesus does 100% of what's necessary to bring you and me in a right relationship with God. Where there's no hostility of righteousness against our sin, where there's no hostility of, of righteous anger or wrath being poured out from God against sinful people like us. Through the years, I've profited from the preaching and writing ministry of John Piper, and he has written a book that I would encourage you to read at some point. Uh, it's actually a book that deals with depression and uh, discouragement. The title is When the Darkness Will Not Lift, and in that particular book, Piper writes, the best news in all the world to the ungodly who grieve under the cloud of darkness and guilt is the news that God, by faith alone, counts them as righteous because of Christ. This is the rock where we stand when the dark clouds gather and the floods lick at our feet. And then look at this portion. Justification is by grace alone. That is, it's not mixed with our merit. It's through faith alone, not mixed with our works. On the basis of Christ alone, not mingling His righteousness with ours to the glory of God alone, not ours. There's peace that this king has the power and capacity to set in place within your soul. And that's the first and most important work. That's why when he came uh, at the first advent, he did not establish the throne of David as an earthly political dominion. He began this work of bringing peace to the hearts and souls of individuals like us sacrificing himself on the cross so that the sin debt would be paid, so that hostility between sinners and God might be removed, and that God the Father would be satisfied and brought near to sinners who know they are broken and know that they were created for a relationship with him yet can't get there apart from Jesus Christ. And that spiritual work of bringing peace is the priority work and when that is completed, then the global work of peace will be installed. It's almost a contradiction, isn't it, to think that the Prince of Peace brings this kind of wholeness through the shedding of His blood, through His personal suffering, through His wrath-bearing work, 
What he experienced in his death is the absolute antithesis to shalom. But because he took all of that on himself, you and I get shalom. The prince of peace. Because of all that he is and all that he does in the work of redemption and in that final rule at the end of the age, he is able to say to his disciples, John 16, I've said these things, and that's referring to teaching and ministry that he has carried with him for many days, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And do you see that concept of a chief, a prince, being wed with peace? He can't guarantee you peace if he doesn't overcome everything that destroys our peace. But he has, and he will. Are you resting in him? Or are you trying to be your own prince of peace? Apart from Christ, there is no lasting peace to be found. Go back to Isaiah 9, and let's look at verse 7 here in conclusion. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How remarkable. Well, we've looked at his character in those four titles. Let's look specifically at some things about his reign. And notice with me, if you will, please, the extent of his reign. There will be no end to the increase of his government and of peace. The word increase probably has reference to abundance. It's going to be a time of unprecedented prosperity when Jesus establishes his eternal rule. And his dominion, the increase, the abundance of his dominion, or as it says here, of his peace. That's included. The welfare of the people, our prosperity, our blessedness under his rule. It's just going to grow, apparently. How can everything be just like it is and yet grow? I, I have a few ideas there, but it just says to me, what a remarkable time. I'm tempted to use the word utopia, and yet I don't think utopia is the accurate description of all that is included here. You begin to think of all those things that disrupt the peace environmentally. I can guarantee you there'll be no inversions. There'll be no cancer-causing agents in the food that you eat or the ground that you till or the grass that you play on. Nothing environmentally that would disrupt this eternal peace. Economically, no debt, no inflation, no earning gaps, no poverty. And yes, I do think there will be work for us to do in eternity. I don't know that we will be remunerated for it, pay scales and such, whatever it is, we're all going to be happy saying, yep, it's perfect. It's exactly as it ought to be. Judicially, well, first of all, there will be no crime. 
No white-collar crime, blue-collar crime, none whatsoever. And whatever decisions of, of justice and righteousness that this king puts in force will be perfect. We'll all say, that, that's incredible, that's amazing. You'll never be weak physically, no sickness, no flu bugs, no fevers, no inexplicable pains, and mentally, no stress. None of the pressures that you now carry day in and day out that worry your mind or just tax your soul. None of that will be present. And spiritually, most importantly, you will be like Jesus. We'll be like him, the Bible says, because we will see him as he is, see him in his glory. We'll be partakers of his holiness. Right now, I feel like at best I'm a part-time sharer in his holiness. Have a few moments where I feel like I think I did it right, and then lots of others I'm like, oh, Lord, forgive me. But then, in that great day, perfect. Peace. The extent of his reign, no end to the abundance of his government or his peace. How about the character of his reign? We'll look again at the text. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. We've talked about this before, so we don't need to belabor it, but every act of deciding a case will be perfect. And righteousness, that means everything he does will be according to his own standard, his own perfect standard, the divine law. And you won't have to make appeals to lower courts or higher courts. You won't have to hire lawyers. It all rests on him. The character of his reign will be marked by justice and righteousness. And then finally, the success. Look at that last phrase. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You know, the enthusiasm or passion of the Lord for his work is what guarantees the success of it. Isn't that good to know? I'll tell you, from the human vantage point right now, I'm not sure. You know, I don't see a, a, a mighty cultural current of righteousness and holiness and, and truth being generated. I, maybe it's happening, but it's subterranean. I mean, I can't see it. Can you? Now, I feel like the cultural currents right now are the opposite of that. They're flowing a different direction, but God says, my own zeal. And he uses, did, did you catch the title that he uses there? The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heavenly armies, the Lord of angel armies. This is God in his might, and in particular, God in his military might. So it's as if he's saying, I'm committed to doing this, and I'll bring whatever power is necessary uh, to this fight to, to make sure it happens. These are the promises that are precious to us, not just in the Christmas season, but in all of life. We know that this world is not as it ought to be. We sang that song just a couple of weeks ago. Do you feel the world is broken? And the echo of the chorus is, we do. But that beautiful hymn text goes on to point us to Jesus, doesn't it? 
the worthy one who by his life and death and resurrection, by every name that he's ever been given, by every title that is rightly his, he is accomplishing a great work. And the question today is, are you a part of it? Are you already submitting yourself to his dominion by faith where you say, he is my king? If not, why not? When will you cease trying to be your own king? Whether over watch bands or big economic issues and challenges or workplace initiatives or government, stop trying to be king. As you trust him, some of you say, yep, I made him my king and I I really am trying to live there. Is this the meditation of your heart or are Are you being daily swallowed up by the hard things of life? In conclusion, I I just want to offer some really simple things here as to what we do with this truth. And the first would be this, believe it. Believe it. You have to do it by faith. Because you can't go make a visit uh, to Jesus and see him. You've just got to accept this word. But in accepting this word, you're not just accepting the opinions or the creative imaginations of, of some writers and authors and spiritual people through the years. This is the the living revelation of God and from God. Here's a second thought. In all the chaos around us right now and all the pressures and cares and responsibilities, and and you'll have to fight to do this just like I do, but make this truth the meditation and resting place of your heart. Now, meditation will come before the rest, and I know that by experience, and some of it is uh, the, the experience of my own failure to do this the way I should. And some of you say, I'm not really good at meditating. Oh, I'll bet you are. We're all actually expert in it. You say, what do you mean? Yeah, Uh, there's another term for meditation that I think every one of us will demonstrate our expertise in. It's called worry. Worry is just a form of meditation, isn't it? And some of you even say, I don't even know how to turn my mind off. And your mind gets going on all the stuff that could happen, all the problems and, and the what ifs. And man, I mean, before you know it, you have just worried yourself into this deep, dark hole that seems inescapable. You've meditated your way down to that point. But God calls us to meditate on truth like this, truth that says this is who the king is, and this is what his purpose is, and this is where the destiny of the world as well as you personally will be. And as we meditate on this truth, there's a different kind of path opening before us and a different kind of trajectory. Make God's word the meditation and and resting place of your heart. And then finally, share it. You know one of the best ways to get God's word to to really just take deep root in your soul? Share it with somebody else. Because you think you understand it and know it, Uh, but then you try to tell somebody else about it, and you're like, man, this is not coming out right. And that does a couple things. One, it forces you to think a little harder and a little deeper, 
and even through that frustration, you're growing. I, I get far more out of my sermons than anybody else here. And that's not because I think they're really great. I, please don't take that in that way. It's just that the, the thought and meditation and preparation that goes into it in the course of a week does something really significant in my soul. You're here for a little brief period of time processing all of this, and, and then when I, as I far too frequently do, mess up the PowerPoint or say things that I don't really mean, it adds to your confusion. You have to process a different level. But when you begin to share God's word or God's truth with other people, it will actually deepen your understanding of it and consequently your faith in it. Not to mention the benefit of just sharing God's truth where somebody else hears it and you never know when there's going to be that glorious moment that somebody else is like, you know what, that is awesome truth. You're right, or I've never understood that, or nobody ever explained to me before who Jesus Christ is. And you're just the messenger in that moment. And God's work just continues to spread. So if you're excited about this, that Jesus is all of this for you personally, share it with somebody. Let's bow in prayer. Father, how thankful we are that you are this Prince of Peace. You are the everlasting Father. The God who has the perfect plan and in your zeal you will accomplish all of these great saving, redeeming purposes. How we praise you for this. We are not able to be king in our world's Sometimes they are little worlds of our own fantasizing, worlds that we fabricate. We try really hard to bring about peace, but we're not able. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would bring us each to that place of sweet submission, where because of your truth, because you are leading us and calling us to believe, we say, you are King and I bow before you. Will you give encouragement to those whose hearts are distracted and, and disrupted on this day? Establish the rule of peace so that they would experience the truth of your promises. Cause each of us to know you, walk with you. Thank you, Lord God. You are who you are, that you have done all that you have done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.